here this week during this retreat, we've had the rare privilege and the excellent, excellent conditions to practice in this way. We've had these um, precious and this rare and precious opportunity to have many of our lives' responsibilities and duties be put aside for a while so we could look deeply into our hearts, uncover what we need to uncover. A question often arises during the end of practice like this that's pretty compelling. How do we bring the insights that we have? How do we bring the deep understanding of the practice that we have home to our lives? How do we bring the spaciousness, the emptiness, the softness to our lives that are so filled with busyness, with the pushes and pulls and tugs of our family, our jobs? There is a beautiful quote from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj that I love a lot. It goes, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. So this everything, being the connection with all of life, being our ability to feel not separate, to feel so deeply and intimately connected through our joys and through our sorrows, we see that we're not different from anyone. Nothingness that we experience in different ways and different layers, this deep emptiness, this deep spaciousness of mind and heart. How can we continue to be consciously aware of and heartfeltly aligned with that deep desire to experience and open to our highest potential? with the challenges of the daily survival tasks that we have, just paying the mortgage, sending the kids to college, the stuff of our offices and jobs, our relationships, our children. When we go home, no one will be ringing bells (laughs) to say, (laughs) now it's time to sit, now it's time to walk, here, Here is the meal offered for you, all prepared. (laughs) Uh, The support here is absolutely incredible. This particular place on the face of the earth is really a Buddha field. It's just such a rare and precious place. This deep, intensive practice that we here experience is temporary, just for here, of course. It's not a way of life. It's designed to support opening very, very deeply in a way that we can't do when we have the responsibilities of home. But we can't live this way forever. It would create a lot of dukkha for us to recreate these conditions in life at our home. So how do we integrate this into life? It's not so easy, but it's not as hard as we think either. 
I'd like to tell a very a story about a very powerful teaching I had from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His unwavering total dedication to freedom, to liberation of his own heart, his dedication to inward liberation, and his dedication to outer liberation, that of his country, the people of his country, and all beings everywhere, is such an immense inspiration to me. After two months of practice in 1989, there was uh, some Dzogchen teachings offered, or Rigpa teachings offered. Uh, they called it Rigpa during that time in San Jose, California. And so it was held at this civic auditorium. And it was the very first time that I was going to experience the Dalai Lama in that way, not on television or in newspapers, but actually um, in the same room, even if it was an immense room. There were thousands of people there, literally thousands of people. It was so well organized. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Dzogchen uh, teachings and the proceedings. It's a very beautiful way of opening to the teachings of the Dharma, of the Buddha. And uh, there's so much that they have to do in order to prepare, to organize, to discipline everybody, to be still and not leave this immense room uh, during the time of, that the teachings are being offered. So they, um, they told us what would be happening and let us know that it was very important for everyone to stay in the room at certain times, not to leave, and to, um, they would give us times for break. Well, the, the uh, teachings went on, and um, one particular time, there was a long time without a break. There were many monks there sitting in front of the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama was on this platform, and he was giving the teachings in uh, he was chanting them, actually, in uh, Tibetan. And then there were others, uh, Sogyal Rinpoche, and I believe Situ Rinpoche was there, and they were uh, translating from time to time what was happening and the instructions. And so um, here we all were, thousands of us, and it was very disciplined, very high teaching in the Tibetan teachings. And um, the Dalai Lama was chanting, and it was um, very formal. So here he was doing the chant, uh, I, I don't know what it all says or what it means, but I, the chant is so, uh, the melody of the chant is so, so he, in the middle of the chant he was going, and then all of a sudden he remembers that we didn't have a bathroom break. <laughs> so in the middle of his chant, he stops his chant and he says, Oh, bathroom, anyone? <laughs> As if it were in his living room. There, were, there seemed to be, he was so oblivious to the fact, or maybe so conscious of the fact, you know, that 
there was this need for human beings to, <laughs> to go to the bathroom in the midst of these very high teachings. And so uh, he stopped the proceedings and he said, oh, of course, of course. And so he just stopped in the middle of his chanting and he, we all took a break and did our bathroom break and came back and he just began again where he left off. <laughs> there was no forcing of the practice, no controlling of anything. It was as simple as that. It was just as easy as that. It was such a great teaching and model for me because it was so real. You know, the, the teaching, these high teachings were not separate from what we had to do in daily life to continue being as humans. So I wanted to share that with you as a way of expressing how important it is to really be real, to really get real about bringing the teachings home to our daily lives. One of the teachings of the Buddha uh, that's important to understand and, and to know that our understanding deepens as we continue along in our, on our path is the teaching of the three pillars of the Dharma. These are maybe called the three pillars of truth. Dharma meaning truth. They're, they are the three areas of life that we can take a look at to see how we are developing, how we are cultivating in those areas our, our spiritual practice, which doesn't include our home life. They are generosity, harmony, and mental development or meditation. These are the three areas, the three pillars. In each and all of these areas, generosity, harmony, or meditation, mental development, the quality of being real is so important. The quality of being authentic is so important. <clears throat> My kids lovingly call me the Dhamma Mama. <laughs> because of my obvious dedication to the Dhamma. By the way, they, <clears throat> they are not um, uh, consciously dedicated to the Dhamma in the way I am. In fact, one of them is a devout Christian, and the other three um, are still kind of looking for their way. Uh, but even with the deepest respect, for my path in life, they don't pull any punches. <laughs> they lay things out to me directly. They keep me on my toes about everything that I, you know, they, they really want me to put my money where my mouth is about my practice. So, one time, and this um, has to do with getting real, one time of many, I was so frustrated with the fact of dishes being in the sink every morning that I woke up, when the evening before, the, the kitchen would have been kept clean, you know, the dishes washed, the floor swept, the counters wiped, everything. 
and that was an ordeal in itself, you know, just to get them to do their chores. And I used to get really frustrated about the dishes in the morning, day after day after day. You know, I wake up in the morning and I wonder where mysteriously these dishes come from. You know, they're supposed to be asleep and I think, how did these dirty dishes get here? And so, one time they kind of all ganged up on me when, when Manindra was there, one of my teachers, my first Dhamma teacher. And uh, I was kind of scolding them around the sink and saying, I can't understand it. You know, why are these dishes here every morning? What, what's the matter with you guys? You know, and they all put their hands on their hips the way Manindra does when he's kind of looking at me and trying to make a point to me. They put their hands on their hips and said, Mom, get real. <laughs> Wake up and smell the coffee. We're human beings. We eat. We dirty the dishes. That's life. (laughs) They really ask me to face reality, you know, by saying, get real. And this is what we have to do. We really have to get real with the conditions of our life. I've had that mantra day in and day out for 28 years. It's how long I've raised kids up to this point. Um, And having it in my face every day is a wonderful teacher. You know, having my kids tell me, "Uh, hello, are you really living in alignment with your goals in life (laughs) to accept how things really are? (laughs) This is how things are, Mom, you know. So can we really do that? (laughs) So in the morning, when her trying to be the holiness, the Dhamma Mama, (laughs) is sitting on the sitting cushion, and the kids are coming one by one, and they're saying, where's my lunch money? Can you sign this paper? Can I have a slumber party this weekend? And all the stuff that comes along with having a family or just having a life, Uh, even if you don't have kids, this is what is going to test us. You know, can we use metta to allow ourselves to give and to say, okay, where's the paper? Let me sign it. And then let that kid go out of the room and then begin again. Okay, well, we'll talk about the slumber party later. And kiss that kid goodbye and sit again. Okay, I'll see if I can come up with $2,000 for your next tuition payment and sit again. You know, this is what really challenges us. It's relatively easy here when the bells are rung for us and the meals are made, but when we go home, that's the real retreat or, you know, the real test. Can our hearts be filled with loving-kindness? You know, we, we may sit there on our sitting cushion doing our metta practice in the morning. May my heart be filled with loving-kindness. May I be at ease with the conditions of the world. And yet when, our, when the phone rings or things like that come along, the kids come along, and we're not the opposite, you know, are we really living 
our spiritual life. So the whole practice of bringing our practice home is a practice of metta. It's a practice of opening our hearts in the face of all those pushes and pulls, the difficulties of life, which we're doing here. We see that in a different way. The practice of metta is really opening our hearts and accepting how it is, accepting what we find there. It's not so important to um, get into the storyline of what we find, but it's what's important is that we're opening our hearts. So the three practices or the three pillars of generosity, harmony, or and mental development. One of the ways in which I learned to surrender to how it is came from a very important teaching with also my teacher Manindra. He was staying at our house once. He was um, recuperating from the operation that he had. And so he was staying with us so that um, I could help him get through his recuperation. And he also wanted to learn what it was uh, to live in a household in America, you know, with children and how it was for somebody to practice with those conditions. (laughs) And um, one time when one of my daughters was going through her hormonal years, (laughs) Uh, she and her her father were um, were having a big argument this this isn't Steve (laughs) we're having a big argument and it was getting more and more hot and Manindra and I were sitting at the table eating he was having his uh, his lunch it was a weekend and we were sitting corner to corner. So he was sitting on my left and I was sitting on the on the corner to him on his right. And so they were arguing, this daughter and her father. And um, it got to the point where they were yelling at each other. And my daughter was saying, no, I'm not going to follow what you say. I'm going to do it how I want to do it. And her father was really upset and it was really challenging for both of us. I, I must say I, you know, I don't blame him at all for being upset. And so his voice started to raise and all of a sudden she darted past us and ran to her room, which she had to go around us and down the hall to get to her room. She slammed the door as hard as she could. And here Manindra and I are sitting. I'm trying to have everything as peaceful as I can for Manindra. And of course, I was so embarrassed and ashamed and sad and angry. And this flood of emotions just overcame me. And I didn't know what to do. And Manindra was there just, you know, kind of, I could see he was 
very, very uh, calm, but I could see that he was kind of wondering what was going on. You know, his eyes were kind of darting around. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so her father ran after her, and he started banging on the door. And he, he started saying, open the door, open the door. And I started, I heard her on the other side, no. And he said, if you don't open the door, I'm going to kick the door in. And she said, go ahead. <laughs> so, she, so he did. He kicked the door in, and he put a hole in the door. And it was so, first of all, that, that wasn't so unusual in our household. You know, I don't, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I'm, I'm a perfectly normal human being. <laughs> um, I don't live a life of monastic life at home. And so uh, Manindra, at the time that he heard the, the kick in the door, I mean, it was this huge, like a, a rifle went off. And um, so he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I was trying to keep everything in control. And he's looking at me and saying, get real, Kamala. You know, I could tell the look in his eyes. And he reached over to me with his right hand, and he put it on my left forearm, and he said, surrender to the law. And those words have stayed with me for so long, for so many years, that any time, you know, I know that I'm resisting something, or I'm not opening something, or I'm not really honest or real with something, that's the mantra to myself. Surrender to the law. This is the way it is. Also during that time, my son worked at Pizza Hut. And um, he used to bring home pizza all the time. <laughs> Manindra hated pizza. The smell of pizza used to be in our house all the time. You know that smell of Pizza Hut, that greasy, smelly salami and everything? I mean, the kids would do all that stuff. It was just all over the clothes and everything all the time. It was just another, you know, surrender. And so I couldn't cook for him all the time. It was, it was really impossible to, to provide him with food all the time to cook for him. I could give him the food, but I couldn't cook for him every day and three meals a day. And that's what he was kind of used to. <laughs> I was, I, it, was, it was a challenging time. I used to try to study with him, wake up at four in the morning, sit. He would, you know, he would chant and say all this, all this Abhidhamma stuff to me while I was falling asleep. And, uh, it, it, and then I'd get out and try to make his breakfast, the kids' breakfast, you know. And so surrender to the law was really appropriate. Well, one time I was serving him breakfast, and uh, I was trying to serve him breakfast. And so I brought the pizza out, the cold pizza. And that's about all I could handle at that day. So he was sitting down in the same chair that he was. And I could see the look on his face. You know, he has this kind of, of smirk and his, his nose kind of wrinkles. And he, he looked at the pizza and I said, surrender to the law. <laughs> and so, but he, he ate the pizza. 
I just remembered that today. <laughs> he was such a good sport about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> So really, being honest, accepting how things are, you know, it's such a relief not to have to control things, you know. So specifically, I'd like to talk a little bit about these three pillars. Um, First, the pillar of generosity. Just a bit about each one. Generosity characterizes many of the inner qualities we need for our spiritual development and spiritual growth. Letting go, opening, connecting to life, creating harmony with those around us. Why is it so important? Why is generosity so important? Because it develops a heart that diminishes the forces of attachment. In our whether we think of it as um, important in our last breath in this life or whether we think of it in terms of when we let go into that final moment of emptiness or nibbana or liberation or whatever you call it it's so important to know how to let go and attachment is one of the most deeply rooted and toxic forces that we live with. So generosity diminishes the forces of attachment. This is why it's so important. It cultivates letting go. That's what it cultivates. It weakens the sense of self because we don't always have all of life circling around our needs, our wants, our Um, need for security. We develop a heart that sees that our security is just as important as anyone else's. We connect to the happiness, the security, the well-being of others. It weakens a sense of self. As we let go and connect with others, it strengthens a sense of well-being. If you can just picture, you know, uh, ourselves, our small, the small way that we oftentimes refer to ourselves as disconnected to others, maybe feeling that um, only we can be responsible for our lives, only we can handle everything. It isn't true. Our life depends on the kindness of others. And their life depends on our kindness too. And if we connect to all beings, that kindness in all beings, then we create a much stronger net of protection for ourselves and all of, and others. It's a much stronger sense of security that way. So it strengthens a sense of well-being because we deeply understand and practice this interconnectedness. In practicing generosity, in giving, we abandon the three root torments of the mind, attachment or greed. 
ill will, delusion. So all of these in one moment of giving are abandoned. In a single moment of generosity, a single moment of letting go, there is goodwill, there's loving kindness, there's compassion, there's sympathetic joy, because we are we could we can be happy for the happiness of others, those who may receive what we have to offer, whether it's material or energetic, um, our time, our kindness, in whatever ways we let go, our need to be right, our opinions. There are many, many ways that we can let go. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, I went to visit uh, our teacher, Sayadu Upandita. He was giving a course in Oregon. And um, I called ahead because I wanted that day that I uh, visited him to be a day when I could offer some food dana to him, when I could offer him a meal. And it's the custom in Asia, uh, I think Sharon mentioned the other evening, to offer a meal to those who are meditating or especially those who are teaching, um, that this is a, a source of happiness for everyone, for the ones giving, for the ones receiving, when you know that it really supports their well-being, their ability to practice, their ability to share the Dharma in some way. And so I called ahead and I made the date and I said, just let me know whatever the meal costs and, um, you know, if you could prepare something special, whatever the cooks are able to prepare, that would be very nice. Uh, But whatever it is, it's okay with me and I'll help in the preparation, which is always a, a great joy to do. So the day that I arrived, uh, as, I was, um, as I was going towards his little hut or kuti, uh, another monk arrived also. And a person uh, driving that monk uh, and the monk and myself were walking along the path. And they were, this man was carrying a lot of big bundles. And the monk that arrived was a um, monk from Vancouver, one of the Theravada teachings, teachers that live around Vancouver. And so I was talking to the man carrying the big bundles of food, and he told me that he was a chef in a hotel in uh, Vancouver uh, that cooked all kinds of Asian foods, and he was from Burma. And uh, that uh, he took off that day to offer food dana to, to Sayada Upandita and to the monks who were teaching and practicing, and that um, this was all the food. And he brought this incredible array of fish and spices and vegetables and everything. And he said, but I heard that uh, you were the one offering dana today. And he said, so it makes me even more happy that I can cook and I, I can offer the day that I was going to offer Donna, I could offer that to you, the day that you're offering Donna. And so, um, so I said, oh, you know, I, I didn't know you were coming today. I would have offered Donna on another day. And so we were there preparing the food, and, and I was lamenting how, you know, if I 
maybe if I would have known or I would have asked ahead and um, is there anybody else offering dana? And he said to me in his uh, sweet Burmese way, and he, he said, oh, don't worry, dear sister. He said, I, I'm still living from the happiness of dana that I gave two months ago. And so we were there and chopping vegetables, and I said, well, how is that? And he said, well, you know, because I'm a cook, I'm a chef, um, there are many times that I have to make shrimps, and you know, I have to buy the shrimps, and a lot of them are still alive. And then when I put them into the pot, then of course they die. And so uh, I feel so bad about this, but this is how it is in my profession. And so one day, a few months ago, I went with my daughter to Chinatown in Vancouver, and I bought all the shrimps that we could carry, uh, in, in as much as my budget could handle. And so we were carrying these two sacks of shrimps down to the water, to the pier. Uh-huh. And as soon as we got there, we let all of the shrimps go in the water. And I was so happy. <laughs> And that was his act of generosity. And he, his, it was so genuine and true. You know, his, just he said, that ability to let go of whatever he had in the budget, you know, and to let go in the water, those shrimps in the water, and to give those, those shrimps life. And he truly was happy for that act of generosity. his um, deep understanding of knowing the importance of letting go was so intertwined in that whole story. It wasn't just, you know, by, because of accumulating good merit. It was truly a deep understanding of knowing the importance of letting go. The second pillar of the Dharma is morality, or uh, sometimes I like to refer to it as harmony, living in harmony with others. This is an extremely important foundation of the three pillars. We all know when we're not in harmony with our families or those around us, it haunts us. It haunts us in life and it haunts us especially when we're very still and we're not distracted and it keeps coming up over and over again. It's really challenging to practice when we don't live in harmony with others. It may not be through our own fault or through our own intention, but this is what, it's what happens in the world. We can create the conditions for deepening our practice more easily when we pay attention how we live, pay attention to how we live our life. When we pay attention to how we live our life, when we really pay attention and we can really um, align our words, our actions, our um, thoughts, with our highest potential, then it's much easier to deepen in the practice. So in speaking about the second pillar of the Dharma, I'd like to um, 
review a little bit the precepts that we take here, the precepts of non-harming, non-stealing. Well, I'll go through them one by one. The first one is non-harming, not uh, taking another life. That's not just human life, but any life. This non-harming is metta itself. It's loving-kindness itself. It's not only refraining from taking life or from killing, but it's also protecting and caring about life. In life, we can see how much we can carry out this particular precept, really caring about our connection with others. When we pay attention, when we pay attention closely, we see that all beings want to be happy because we know that that's the way we feel deep in our hearts. We can see for others, too. It includes all beings, not just humans, as I said. The kids, my kids at home used to have this, and myself, too, used to have this... um, fear of spiders. At back home where we live, there's these big spiders called cane spiders, uh, sugarcane spiders. And we lived in the middle of a sugarcane field um, in a little village. And there were these great big spiders. They were huge and they were scary looking. And, you know, it, they, they kind of make your hair go up on your neck when you see them. And the kids used to scream when they'd see them. And they, they're often around, you know, when you open the, the shower curtain or the bathtub. They're, they're often around there, so they'd go in, and the, the kids would go, <laughs> and the, or I, sometimes I would do that too. And I'd see the spiders just, you know, they'd, they'd run away really fast. I mean, you could see just that amount of noise and that unkindness really hurt them. And they'd really run for protection. Every time this would happen, when Manindra was there, he, it used to scare him, you know. So this, he used to get up from where he was and run and say, what's happening, what's happening? And then we, you know, in the beginning when he was there with us in that little house, we'd tell him, oh, it's just the spiders, just the spiders. And he would say, oh, all beings want to be happy. All beings want to be happy. <laughs> he would just repeat this over and over again. And so once the, one of the kids was going to you know, take a, a um, newspaper and slap, like hit this, kill the spider, and Manindra, <laughs> then I heard Manindra go, ah, you know, he was so funny. <laughs> and he put his, he, uh, the first time I ever heard him scold anyone, in, in that way. He put his hands on his hips and he looked at one of my kids and he says, do you own the world? And he says, you're not the only one living here. The spiders also live here. And, he, and it really shocked. I forget which one of my kids it was. It really shocked them and it really, they started to really pay attention. It, he kind of had to wake them up and said, uh, he told them, that you can see by, you know, the way you, uh, when your voice goes high like that, they run away, they want to find protection. And 
it, it really took a while for them to understand. Manindra is somebody that is like a walking Dhamma encyclopedia. He, if you ask him one question, he could take hours to answer one question. It could take, I heard Joseph say one time that he would only stop when the last person walked out of the room. (laughs) It's really true. You know, last year he visited us, Steve and I, in our home in Maui, and Steve asked him one question. It it went on for like two days. The the answer, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I heard him. He was constantly on, you know, on the subject. Of course, it was by this time he had gotten to the second volume of the Abhidhamma or something like that. But he is really an incredible source of Dhamma. And he also has so much metta. He's full of metta. His care of life, his connection with life, his way of caring about people is incredible just to see him in action. It's one of those things you learn by watching him and how he is rather. I mean, I couldn't understand half of the Abhidhamma that he was trying to teach me, but the way he was really taught me. One time, um, he was there at home and I, I would go to work. I'd have to go to work in the morning and the kids would be off to school and so he was left alone writing his letters at home. So I'll give you a few pieces of the story. Manindra is this man who's, if, if you haven't uh, seen him in a picture or in person, he's sort of short. He has a tan, kind of golden brown skin and a shiny, shiny head. He's kind of a shiny person, very lively, and he wears white robes all the time. Um, and uh, he wears a little cap, like an ice cream. It looks, he looks like a little ice cream man. But when he takes off the cap, you know, he's bald with these long flowing white robes. So here he is in these long flowing white robes writing his letter. And another part of the story is that we lived in a small community at that time that had a person in the community who was relatively harmless, but he would go in everybody's homes. He would try to get in everybody's homes. And he would snoop around and take a few things. He he was a thief, but not a real big one. And everybody knew him, you know, that this guy, his name was Lopes. And so, but still it was kind of creepy to have him around. So another part of the story is that the house we lived in, everybody, when we just bought the house, people would say to us, oh, you're living in that house. So, well, that house is a haunted house, you know, and uh, nobody lived in it for a long time. But we, we moved in and we had the house blessed. We had uh, a Hawaiian blessing, a Buddhist breast blessing, a Christian blessing, a Hindu ble- breast blessing. We just wanted to cover all the bases. And so, <clears throat> so 
Manindra's there. And one day he calls me. I'm at the office. And he says, uh, and this is really odd. I had given him the number at the office, but he would never call. He doesn't hardly use the telephone. And so uh, he got on the phone and he said, "Um, um, Hello, Mom? He calls me Mom. (laughs) And he says, "Um, Somebody just came into the house. And uh, this man came into the house and I think that uh, he was trying to take something, but when I saw him, he screamed. (laughs) And immediately I thought about Lopes, and I didn't hear too much else, so I said, Manindraji, stay there. I'm calling the police. The police will come and let them in when they come, and I'll be right there. And so I I called the police, and I said, please go to this house immediately and speak to the man that's in the house. I'll be right home. So I went, and when I got there, the policeman was there. And Manindra was explaining to the the policeman, of course, asked him what happened. And so Manindra, of course, explained in complete detail. (laughs) Just like, you know, giving a report about all the little things that happen in the mind and body. It was like the, the policeman was wiping his brow and so I learned the story that that I was listening and that so apparently what happened is Lopes got in the house walked down the hallway where Manindra was writing his letters and so all of a sudden Lopes sees this little shiny guy in a white robe the ghost right and Lopes goes turns around, runs out the door, Manindra runs after him. (laughs) And Manindra's saying to him, wait, 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 I think you need help. I think you need help. (laughs) This is what I hear Manindra telling the policeman. So, um, no fear, just completely fearless. All that was in his heart was trying to connect to this guy, you know. So I thought Manindra was in trouble. I didn't know Lopes was in trouble. <laughs> and so um, Manindra told me that he kind of, he chased him into the backyard. And Lopes had dropped, had come in through the back apparently, and he got on his bicycle. Uh, we didn't have a back uh, fenced-in yard then. And uh, Lopes took off uh, on his bicycle really fast. So we never had to worry about Lopes anymore. (laughs) This kind of fearlessness that comes with being connected with life, you know, really just being connected with kindness and not fear. That's the kind of uh, metta that Manindra embodied and was a model for many people about So the second uh, precept has to do with not taking what is not offered. Um, It has to do with generosity, which I spoke about 
earlier, which is the first pillar of the Dharma. In terms of metta, generosity is really offering our friendship, offering our connection, our wishes for their happiness, in a way where we're not (coughs) expecting anything in return. This is true generosity when we're not expecting anything in return. It's like um, giving to a child, you know, when it's that kind of feeling when you give to a child and it's not that you expect anything back from that child. You're just happy that that child is happy with a gift. Or even if the child's not so happy, just the fact of giving makes for happiness. In terms of metta, Generosity is also a way of being, I mean, uh, metta is a way of being generous to ourselves. So in in terms of the practice of metta, when we can really practice metta, it's a way of caring for ourselves, of being generous to ourselves. It's a kind of generosity when there's no expectation of being so pure of metta being so pure. This kind of purity is so healing when we give in that way, when our wishes for the well-being without anything, uh, without asking for anything in return, even a thank you. It's not easy to do, but it's something that we can open to. Um, This kind of giving this kind of loving heart is so healing. And I truly believe in this power of love, the healing power of love. Many times in a metta retreat, people ask, can we really help others by wishing for their happiness? Well, it's hard to say. We really don't know. But I can, I can see, I can um, know by some experience that The purity of our intention is so important. Once, when the kids were really small, my eldest daughter, uh, who's now uh, 30, she'll be 30 this year, she was only about five at that time, and she was playing around with her friends, and I was ironing, and she burned herself on the iron, and she had a long, long... um, burn on her arm, her forearm. And it really hurt, of course, and it was, it was red and it was pulsating and swollen. And um, so she was crying her eyes out. And so just, I didn't know what else to do. You know, I put cold water on it, some ice on it and everything. And her friends were all huddled around her. And so we were in the bedroom And I said to um, my daughter, Rona, I said, lay down, honey, and let's have all your friends come around you, and maybe they'll make you feel better. So she laid down with that big red welt on her arm. And so I asked all the little kids to um, send her love. I said, let's send Rona love, you know, just trying to play a game, really, to get her mind off of it. And so all these little kids lay around her and they closed their eyes and said, I just said things like, Rona, we love you. We love your arm. 
may you get better, I hope you get better real soon, I hope it doesn't hurt you, you know, things like that that kids could understand. And they were there with their eyes closed like this, and they look so sweet, and they're so, it's so vivid in my memory. And it was amazing. I, I sat there and I watched that welt on her arm get smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just a little line. And after a little while, they didn't think anything of it, and they just got up and they went back to their shenanigans again. <laughs> but it's so powerful, the power of love, of this, how pure it can be when it's in that kind of purity. When we can give in that way, give our well wishes in that way, sometimes it's hard to understand how we can do that or to do that at all, but it's possible we can see as we open to the practice. The third precept is refraining from speaking an untruth or refraining from speaking in ways that will hurt or harm others. The Buddha broke all the precepts in his multi-life training as a bodhisattva, except for this one. This one of, uh, from the time that he made his determination to become a Buddha, when he was on his journey as a bodhisattva, it is said that he never broke this precept. And the reason is quite profound. His commitment to the truth not just the truth in terms of living in harmony with society, but also in association with the deepest truth, with the deepest wisdom. He had this immense devotion to stand on that truth. And so it was extremely important to really live the truth at every level possible, to stand on reality rather than illusion. So a very, very important precept to keep, not um, using our words to harm others, to cause hurt in any way, not just in speaking the truth, but in many of the ways that we do speak the truth. How do we speak the truth? When do we speak the truth? What tone of voice do we use? There are many ways that we can look into this more deeply. When I practiced um, once, actually it was the first time I practiced <coughs> with Sayadaw Upandita in Australia, he was very keen on uh, having a very precise report as to how our practice went, how we were able to be with the breath, uh, how we were able to be with any other um, meditation object that was arising and passing away in every moment, he asked us to make a very truthful and precise report when we had our minute, a few minutes with him every other day. And in that report, we also let him know how long we were practicing uh, how many hours a day sitting and walking. And um, in the beginning, there were these group 
group interviews like we had here. And so I heard different people making their reports. And some would say, oh, my practice is excellent. It's very good. I'm, I can be with the breath all the time. I can, uh, you know, I'm sitting, I'm hardly sleeping. And there were few reports like this, you know, just uh, sort of to impress, I think, you know. And um, I, I thought to myself during that time, gee, my practice isn't very good. I could never do that, you know. <laughs> Uh, but so I just, when I gave my report, just said what was happening, nothing special, nothing really big, you know, drowsiness, restlessness, whatever there was happening. And others gave that kind of report too, that, but there were few who gave some reports of how perfect their practice was. And so the next day, Sayadaw Upandita asked, his Dharma talk was about telling the truth. His whole Dharma talk was on how important it was to be truthful. Because if we couldn't be truthful, then how could we really know the deepest truth? If we couldn't be truthful at that level of telling, of being honest in, in a kind way with what was going on. And so he asked every, it was so important that everybody learn this lesson, that he asked everybody who hadn't been absolutely truthful to line up at his door and to, and to ask for his pardon. <laughs> and at, at first I thought, wow, this is a tyrant. <laughs> it was my first time to practice with him. But then I realized that that was an extremely important teaching, and that really he laid himself on the line. He didn't care whether we liked him or not. He just really wanted us to be truthful. He wasn't in a popularity contest. That truthfulness was very high on his list. The fourth precept is using our sexual energy wisely and appropriately. It's really having a sense of integrity about how we use our energy in that way, not to harm others. Um, Our energy, sexual energy, is a very powerful force. If we can use it to protect our relationships and the relationships of others, then it's very easy for us to open our hearts deeply when we don't have disharmony that is caused by the misuse or the unwise, inappropriate use of our sexual energy. The fifth precept has to do about being careful about using any substances that will cloud the mind. And this will range for all of us from complete abstinence to taking some middle path. You know, and each one of us has to find out for ourselves
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.